welcome to this first episode on the Sharia. What I'm going to cover hopefully in the next 25 minutes or so is um, a broad outline of uh, the scope of Islamic law um, and we'll begin to have a look at some of the, um, the inputs, the, the sources from which the Sharia is, is drawn. Uh, in the next episode, um, we'll go on to look at um, the impact of the Sunnah of Muhammad and his Hadiths, um, and also the influence of the Jahiliyyah, the, the time before Islam, in, uh, in creating and developing the Sharia. Um, that then leads on to uh, the state of Sharia today, the, uh, the four parallel but distinct legal traditions uh, known as the schools of law within Islam. There are generally three areas that, uh, that I think you need to look at and consider when we're thinking about the Sharia law. So you need to think about the scope of the law, what it means to Muslims, and what it means to the Muslim community more widely, and for their relationship with Allah. So we need to consider the way in which it covers both secular considerations, so the way that perhaps law might work in the UK in the 21st century, but also the religious connotations of how the Sharia impacts on a person's life as a believer in Islam. Secondly, um, we're going to have a think about the sources of the law, the things that have gone into making the Sharia law what it is today in the 21st century and how that has developed. And finally, the third area that we're going to think about is how that development across 1400 years has led to uh, the Sharia law being the shape that it is today and and how that works in terms of the, um, the schools of law, um, the four madhabs in Sunni Islam and the Jafari school in Shia Islam. The word Sharia means path. It has connotations of the, the direct route across the desert to the watering hole. And consequently, it is it's analogous to the route that people can take through life in order to take them to a positive outcome on the day of judgment at the end of their lives. Since it's a religious law, it's far more wide ranging than the purely, almost purely secular law that we might be more used to having grown up and lived in the Western world, Western Europe, in England, in the 21st century. UK law, despite having originally been largely religious in um, form and inspiration, is now almost exclusively secular. It deals with personal behaviour in terms of the way that that behaviour has an impact on the rest of society and the individuals around us as we are living our lives. It doesn't aim to moderate or get itself involved with issues of individual belief or individual thought, except insofar as those things then have a direct impact on the lives and the rights and the human rights of other people in society more broadly. Generally speaking, the law in the UK, secular law, is not concerned with what goes on in private or within the space of someone's own head and belief system. In contrast, 
the Sharia is intensely personal. It's intended to be a guidance system for individuals in their relationship with God and by extension the other people in the community around them and in other communities with which they may have some interaction. So it's distinct from secular law in terms of not merely being a tool for social management. Religious law impacts and directs the relationship between the individual and God. And consequently, it is far more wide ranging. It doesn't just cover those public interactions that may come about when people um, interface or perform actions that have impact on other people in society. It's private, intensely and personally private. It's to do with an individual's personal thoughts because it's all to do with their intentions and their relationship with Allah. At the end of the day, the very purpose of Islam is to submit to the will of God. And it's the Sharia that lets the individual believer know what that will is in order that they can submit to it, comply with it, and consequently, in the afterlife, go to heaven as opposed to be punished for doing things which they ought not to have done. So it covers public behaviour, personal behaviour in a public sphere, as well as communal behaviour, how society acts because it's made up of individuals. It covers, of course, those secular day-to-day -day laws which are covered outside of religious law anyway, but it also covers the sacred aspects of an individual's life. How to pray, when to pray, what preparations are required before prayer, how and when can somebody be suitably, ritually pure in order to carry out worship? When should one go on Hajj? When ought one not to go on the Hajj? Because of this, it's far more wide-ranging. In fact, it's fair to say that it covers every conceivable aspect of human life and the relationship between the individual and God and the individual and everybody and everything else in the created universe. A good way to remember the breadth and the impact of the Sharia is perhaps to consider the moral categories of actions that we discussed and you learnt about in the lower six back in year 12. Think about the way that Every action that somebody carries out falls into one of those categories. From, on the one end of the scale, obligatory or fard, right the way down to the other end of the scale, where something is actively forbidden and must not be undertaken. Um, so it becomes haram. In between, you've got actions which are encouraged, actions which are neutral and therefore have no direct impact, and actions which are discouraged, although they are, strictly speaking, allowed. And remember that we discussed in year 12 the fact that the context and the intent are just as important, and in some cases more important, than the strict definition of what those actions are in terms of their relationship to the written law. So the context is very important. And the reason the context is very important is because that allows an individual to be able to make a decision about whether or not an action in a particular circumstance is allowed, not allowed, encouraged, discouraged. We're not going to go into it in too much detail here and now in this particular podcast because you've got the notes from last year and you've got that information. It's in the year 12 textbook in 
a reasonable amount of detail. So not really going to come back to that now. But in terms of thinking about the way in which the Sharia is all-encompassing and the totality of the system, that's a really good thing, benchmark, to have in the back of your mind. Everything that goes on, any thought, act, deed, intention, all of that is covered by the Sharia in its totality. Secondly, then, we need to have a think about where the Sharia comes from. What are the sources of it? And it's not, though it might be obvious to think this, it's not so simple as simply saying it comes from God. It's the law of Islam. Islam is to do with submitting to the will of God, therefore the Sharia comes from God. It is more complex than that as a construction. We can think about the inputs into what has become the Sharia, or what are known in Arabic as usul ulfiq, or the roots of the law, as generally falling into one of two categories. Either a divine source, and we can think here perhaps about the Quran itself and the contents of the Quran, or a human source. And there are far more in terms of numbers of human sources feeding into the Sharia than there are directly divine ones. The third category, perhaps, or it may fall into one or the other, and you need to kind of make a decision for yourselves here, is the arguably sort of semi-divine source or the inspired source, um, which comes to us via the Hadith and the Sunnah. So the examples of the Prophet and the recordings of his sayings and deeds. Clearly, Muhammad as a man is not a divine source. But the fact that he's been chosen as the Prophet and his Sunnah, his example is so important, for that reason, there can be a tendency to consider Muhammad's influence on the Sharia as being quasi-divine, even though he himself is not, because his inspiration comes from God, and therefore it, it's perhaps not a grey area, but it's something which could be debated, perhaps. Beyond that, and into the human inputs, the human roots of the law, um, we can think, first of all, about the influence of the Jahiliyyah, the, the time before Islam, the time of ignorance and darkness, which in Arabic is referred to as Urf. Um, we need to think about the struggle to correctly interpret both the Quran and the Hadith, which is known as Ijtihad, the struggle to interpret. The consensus of the scholars, Ijma. The application of analogy, called Qiyas. The consideration of communal benefit if there is no other um, definition to fall back on in terms of the decision in a particular circumstance, um, which is called maslaha. Um, and for the shears, um, the application of um, aql, um, or reason, um, but that only happens within Shia law, in Shia jurisprudence, and therefore within the Jafari school of law. During the lifetime of the Prophet, Muhammad was the primary source of law for the Ummah. The Quran, clearly, at this point, had not finished being revealed. And therefore, it was incomplete in terms of what was available to humanity and to the, the Muslim community. If somebody within the community wished to understand how to act or to behave in a certain set of circumstances, they would go to Muhammad and ask the Prophet what his direction was in terms of 
how they should behave and how the interaction ought to work out, whether that was in terms of their behavior in relation to Allah or their relation to other people in the community, family, friends, the wider world outside of Islam. Once Muhammad passes away in 632, what's left directly for the community is the Quran in its finally and fully revealed form and the memories of the Sunnah, the example of the Prophet, and over the course of the next generation, the recordings of the Hadith, his sayings and deeds, which then become codified within the books of Hadith. So think of the, the accurate six books of Hadith. The Quran, literally the Kalam Allah, the word of God, takes precedence because it's holy. It is directly from the mind of God and it's immutable. It can't be changed. Um, now, there are consequences of that which work in a number of different ways. For example, where the Quran, and it doesn't often, talks about crime and the punishments directly linked to specific crimes, these then become hard, H-A-A-D, or restricted, reserved by and for Allah. Because the Quran is immutable and can't be changed, therefore the relationship between those specified crimes and the particular punishments that are associated with them is also immutable and cannot be changed. However, what you will find in some of the more liberal schools of law and interpretation is that there is an attempt to contextualize or there may be an attempt to um, defer the relationship between those crimes and the punishment until the day of judgment in order that God in a divine and therefore perfect way can judge more appropriately than is possible in a human context. However, strictly speaking, the hard crimes, for example, adultery, apostasy from religion, theft, these manner of crimes are linked directly within the Quran to a specific punishment that relates to each one. Why is it then, if we've got these related crimes and punishments set out within the Quran, that there's a need for other influences and other inputs into the Sharia? Largely it's to do with the brevity with which the Quran addresses these issues. So, there are only somewhere like 200 to 220 verses, single lines of poetry within the Quran, which relate to specifically behavior in terms of a legal context. Now, that compares to about 6,000 verses of the Quran, which don't relate to crimes, punishments, and the basis of the Sharia law. It's difficult to be exact about how many verses relate in which direction, because some of them relate to the same subjects in different parts of the revelation. So it's about 200 to 220 that relate to um, directly things that input into the Sharia and the development of the law. Where there are gaps, and clearly with only 200 lines of poetry to cover all of that breadth which is going to be covered by the Sharia in terms of personal and public life, there are masses of gaps. Where there are gaps, they are initially, were initially filled with examples from the Sunnah and from the Hadith. For example, in terms of the way that the Quran relates um, the requirement for Salah, for ritual worship, it does not, dis it does not distinctly say 
how to go about the practice of Salah. It doesn't say what needs to happen in advance in terms of uh, wuzu or gusul and preparation, ritual preparation and purity before prayer. It doesn't talk about the detailed timings of Salah within the cycles of the day. Those gaps are filled by the Sunnah of Muhammad and the interpretation of that example. The Quran is broad enough that it effectively just says, and pray in the way in which you have been taught. The detail, the way in which to get that right, comes from the Sunnah and the example of Muhammad. Where that is then broken down into um, more specific detail is within the Hadith and the, the recordings of what Muhammad said. And the Hadith, the Haditha, plural, is, um, is recorded in terms of a way which will give it a level of authenticity and authority within the tradition. So a particular hadith will be written down. Scholars at the time or in the, the couple of generations beyond Muhammad um, went back and did painstaking historical research to establish what the chain of transmission of each particular hadith was so that X told Y told Z told me and I recorded that the prophet said on these days in these circumstances the following words the level of research also went into detail about who each of those individuals was in the chain of transmission so x and y and z those individuals who had passed the hadith along were they fine upstanding members of the community were they regarded as being trustworthy were they from the other point of view were they people who were getting very old and therefore their memory may be failing? Were they individuals who had a reputation for fibbing on occasion? That kind of thing. So you've got within the Hadith and the collections of Hadith a, a clear system for looking at things which are reported as having been said by the Prophet and a gauge as to how authentic they should be considered in terms of making decisions about how the Sharia works. So what does the Quran contain which is useful in this context when we're thinking about the development and the sources of the Sharia? It talks explicitly about the articles of faith. So those six articles of faith that you have known about since GCSE. Uh, belief in the angels, in Tawheed, the oneness of God, predestination, um, Al-Qadar, judgment and the afterlife, Akira, um, the books of revelation, Qutub, um, and uh, prophethood. It talks about religious practice. It talks about prayer and the five pillars. Although, as I've just been saying, the detail there is lacking and it's filled in with the example of Muhammad. It gives some examples of civil law. So, for example, business management. In um, Surah 43, verse 32, we can hear that we raise some of them above others in ranks so that some may command work from others. There's, a, there's an establishment of a, of a social hierarchy there. It talks about criminal law, um, and just earlier we've been hearing about hard crimes being specifically laid out. So the amputation of hands and feet for theft, stoning for adultery. The Quran talks about family law. It talks in outline about marriage. Um, it talks about divorce. It talks about matters of inheritance. It gives dietary directions. So, for example, what constitutes um, halal food? The, um, the fact that pork is forbidden, alcohol is forbidden. Um, it sets out 
prohibitions on certain activities. Now, that overlaps to some extent with the dietary law, so alcohol is, is forbidden. Um, the, for, the forbidding of gambling, um, of taking loans or giving loans on interest. Surah 9 um, talks um, in some detail about those hard crimes. Um, for this reason, it's probably why uh, Surah 9, Chapter 9, is the only one of 114 in the Quran which does not begin with the words Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim, in the name of uh, in the name of Allah, the most compassionate, the most merciful. Um, there is some debate there as to whether actually Surah 9 is simply a continuation of, of, of Surah 8, but there is a question mark there about whether that might be the case. Um, it's Surah 9 in which the, um, the revelations about stoning for adultery and the amputation of, of hands and feet for theft are revealed. The Quran itself is arranged, the 114 chapters within it, in descending order of length. It's not chronological. And consequently, it's relatively easy from an outside perspective to look at the Quran and consider that there are sort of contradictions within the revelation that, that, that the message appears to, um, to vary as you work through from start to finish. If you unpick that back into a chronological order, it's quite clear that what you've got is um, a development of revelations which fit with the context in which those revelations took place. So um, you might think about the, the development of um, revelations dealing with personal behavior in relationship with those outside of Islam. Remember at the time of the Prophet, certainly to start with, um, Islam as a, uh, a newly um, considered uh, phenomenon within Mecca was quite brutally repressed um, the Meccan revelations talk about a sort of a, a, an absolute pacifism. The, the sort of instructions that you might think of in um, the Christian interpretations of the gospel and turning one's cheek when one is struck, the, the, the strength and the, the courage of pacifism in the face of aggression. In the early Medinan period, um, what you see is um, permission given to those who have traveled from their homes um, to take up arms against their oppressors. It's so quite a radical departure there. It's still defensive, but you've moved from a quite a, a, a significant statement of, of direct pacifism to a situation in which self-defense is, is permissible. By the time you get to the late Medinan period, um, those um, offending against Islam, the enemies of Allah, are to be destroyed. And you've got this gradation of, of development as, as the... Um, as the Quran is revealed over the course of the 22 years of the prophecies. Um, when the Quran is considered with these periods in mind, it's possible to apply a certain level of context to the Kalam Allah. For example, the, um, the ostensibly contradictory statements about alcohol can be reconciled by understanding them as three separate stages, either for a, a new member of Islam to, to progress through, allowing to gradually remove alcohol from their lives, as opposed to having to give it up entirely and immediately. Or it could be considered in terms of the way in which the revelations fit to the context of the Islamic society and the Islamic community at the time. At the point at which, in Mecca, in early Islam, Muhammad had stood up and castigated anybody who, who had anything to do with alcohol, it would have been just another reason for the society to, the broader society, Meccan society, to round on the Muslims. 
in that first stage, the revelations are effectively gentle advice to humanity. And it's only later on, as, as Islam becomes hegemonic and, and in control of its own destiny, that the directions of the revelation become um, definitive and give absolute direction to the individuals within the ummah. Okay, so that takes you to your 25 minutes or half an hour of podcast. Um, in the next episode, we're going to look in a bit more detail at uh, the influence of Muhammad, the Sunnah, um, and the Hadith, and also the impact of the Jahiliyyah, the time of ignorance before Islam, outside of Islam, on the development of Islamic law over the course of the last 1,400 years. Once we've done that, um, a, a, a brief look at how the Sharia has developed into the distinct legal traditions, the schools of law, um, and that hopefully will give us the overview that we need for the whole topic. Thank mm -hmm. you.